Azbilamnishatwanajim Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yeah, I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed in the name of Allah the Gracious the Merciful. Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam with Imam Tokit and we and myself, uh, Walid Ahmed. And we do have a luxury of uh, other Imams with us uh, Imam Musharraf Ahmed and Asan Maksud. And they'll probably be dipping uh, uh, in to uh, to the show as well with their with their comments and their their thoughts. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, the time is uh, six po- uh, six minutes past seven. It's Friday, the sixth of January, two thousand and twenty-three. As always, we have a packed show this morning. Uh, the bre- uh, the breakfast show is an active. Uh, interactive show, should I say, interactive broadcast. It means that our listeners have the opportunity to ring in uh, in order to share their thoughts and views on any the, any of the items we may be discussing. Uh, they can uh, you can ring us uh, on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can use a more modern method of uh, tweeting. Voice of Islam UK is the Twitter handle. Uh, as mentioned, we do have a packed program. In a few minutes' time, we'll be uh, giving a rundown of the weather before going on to examine some of the news stories that are doing the rounds both within the community and also outside in the wider community as well. Uh, and as far as uh, the main items in the show uh, are concerned, well, those familiar uh, with this broadcast would know that we do select two particular topics, two particular stories that we hone in and uh, dwell upon, if I can put it that way. Uh, now, uh, today, uh, in keeping with the, uh, uh, what is it, uh, keeping with in, in line with the season, uh, it's, it's very much a new year. We're still passing through the first week. So in keeping with that, we uh, selected a topic that um, is suitable. It's about New Year's resolutions. And the subject title is, Are New Year's Resolutions Powerful or Pointless? Uh, we'll be exploring this topic uh, with physician, psychiatrist, designer and writer of Al-Islam magazine, Dr. Abdul Haq Compier. And uh, we also spoke uh, on this particular issue uh, with uh, Rachel Isip. Now, Rachel is a time management coach, uh, productivity consultant, and organization expert and author. And we'll be sharing what she had to say in the course of uh, that part of the program between uh, 7.30 and 8.15, maybe extending that to 8.30. We'll, we also spoke to Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, uh, now, Sylvain is uh, a professor, director, agri-food analytics lab, and former dean of the Faculty of Management, and is the author of four books. So it'll be interesting to, to hear what uh, Sylvain had to say. So as mentioned, that's going to be between 7.30 and around 8.15, maybe 8, 8.30, and that's when we'll be covering that subject. If you're interested in it, may, do make sure you remain tuned in till then. As far as the next uh, main topic is concerned, something we picked up from Science Daily website, and it is about tackling uh, substance abuse among the uh, the young. Um, so that's something uh, that we were looking at, um, and uh, particularly the success of one of the programs to address this uh, menace, high school program linked to lower substance abuse is the title of that particular topic. Uh, And uh, to understand this better, we'll be discussing it with L. Jones, who is spoken word poet, uh, an educator, journalist, and community activist living 
in African Nova Scotia. Uh, so it'll be interesting to hear what he has to um, say on that particular issue. So lots to cover, lots to do. And uh, as mentioned uh, at the top of the program, we do have um, the, uh, a team of imams to make sure that we also cover the Islamic angle appropriately during the course of this broadcast. Imam Tukir uh, Tanweer will be leading that. And uh, without further ado, uh, let me just pass the mic on to you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum Yes, so I'll start the show off uh, from my side with the weather and the forecast for today. Uh, this from BBC weather today will start dry and bright for most with blustery showers in the northwest tending to ease and cloud will build into the west later in the afternoon with the odd uh, shower possible in places and the forecast for tonight is that tonight uh, cloud and winds will increase with rain moving into the northern and western areas. Eastern areas will continue generally dry with the odd showers possible a mild night uh, for the time of year so that's just the weather forecast uh, still still um, showers here and there cold so do make sure that when you do go out uh, make sure that you are fully covered um, and you know, just make sure that you don't get the cold I, I mean have you read the news uh, brother Vlid regarding uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and a move to Al Nasser Yes. Um, so I mean, to be honest, uh, I, th- I think it's uh, it's going to be interesting this one uh, because we've just had the World Cup in 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 Qatar in the in the Middle East, and uh, critics were criticizing that uh, you know why why are they holding it there? And uh, mm. there were other controversies as well, uh, such as with the with the alcohol ban, with the with the, you know many other controversies. But uh, to be honest, uh, I think. Uh, the World Cup final was one of the best we had seen, and uh, now uh, the move of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo in uh, in uh, one of these leagues in Saudi Arabia, uh, I think it will make a change to the football mm-hmm. in in the Middle East. Um, you have such a huge uh, superstar. Also, although he is in his you know, mm. he his prime has finished, but mm. uh, he's thirty seven and almost uh, on far. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, mm. it, it's it will be interesting to see, you know, what what this does now for for the league there. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to read you, out. You think he just went for money or? To be honest, I think uh, um, I think it was for the for the money. It's million, isn't it, or something of that order? Uh, yeah, let me just um, confirm that. So, so this the deal uh, is reportedly worth up to two hundred oh. uh, million uh, euros. So that's uh-huh. about one hundred and seventy-seven million a year mm. commercial agreement. More than we earn, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just slightly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you were going to read a quote? Yeah. You? So I was just I just wanted to read out that uh, Ronaldo itself. You know, he's uh, the former Manchester United player and uh, Real Madrid mm. Juventus forward and he signed a two and a half year contract to play for the Saudi Pro League in one of the most surprising transfers in recent history. Ronaldo as we all know he's won five Belladors awards and uh, five Champions League titles um, and now he will play outside of Europe for the very first time. Uh, he himself he has said that I'm so proud to make this big decision in my life and in Europe my work is done and I won everything and played for the most important clubs in Europe and uh, this is a new challenge. 
So the Portuguese, uh, as I mentioned, uh, that he has reportedly, uh, this worth up to $200 million, this uh, yearly contract. Um, he further said that uh, I'm a unique player, and he said that I will beat all the records there, and I, I want to beat a few records here. And this contract is unique, but I'm a unique player. So for me, it's normal. Uh, I really don't worry about what people say. I I am really, really happy to be here. And I know the league is very competitive. And I saw many games. I'm ready to keep playing football. So, I mean, his his welcome mm. was... Um, he he was, you know, welcomed very well. I don't yes. know if you had uh, seen the... I saw glimpses of it. Um, yes, so yes, he was uh, very warmly welcomed. And, and you know, one thing which is interesting is that he said that he had also turned down offers from different teams from around the world. He mm. said that... And I quote that nobody knows this, but uh, I am. I have had many opportunities in Europe, in Brazil, in Australia, America, Portugal. Many clubs have tried to sign me and I gave my word to this club. And I want to give a different vision of this country and football. This is why I took this opportunity. So it's, it's something very special for the Middle East as mm. well, that he's turned down all of these clubs. And, uh, you know, he, he has... Picked uh, this uh, this mm. club uh, in Saudi Arabia, Al Nasser. Mm. So uh, yeah, that's that's it's just. also that he parted with his agent as well. His agent wasn't happy with uh, what he was doing. Mm. That's also been said. Uh, are you are you following uh, now? Are you going no, to? No, I don't. I don't follow. Is, is Al Nasser going to be your new? Uh <laughs> <laughs> I don't follow it, but I've got two sons that are quite football um, enthusiasts. So they feed me news every now and then, and um, very up to date news as well. <laughs> so I am I'm kept up to speed. And the other problem I have is that if I ask something, they they think that it's it's an obvious answer, and they roll their eyes as well at that time. So <laughs> <laughs> I have to face that as well. So uh, yes, it's an interesting move, and he also turned down uh, the United States. I'm told as well um, to play in the. Um, in the in that league, Absolutely. so yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting move. Yeah. And and I guess an Islamic touch here uh, would be mm. that you know he himself, um, you know he himself has played throughout his life. He's loved the game, and mm. uh, I guess from an Islamic perspective, um, it's really important to note that uh, uh, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him has said that, and I and I always mention this when mm. we are covering the sports mm. aspect that. Uh, uh, he said that al mu'min al min mu'min is if that a healthy be- believer is better than a weak believer, meaning that uh, you know if we are physically active, mm. uh, then you know we we will be uh, able to perform our daily task mm-hmm. as well, our daily prayers. Um, so our, you know give due rights towards God Almighty mm. and and also towards the creation as well. Um, so you know we ourselves uh, should try ourselves and and recently um i'm told by a friend of mine that uh, his holiness mentioned very recently that especially the missionaries uh, within the community they should at least be walking two to four miles daily so um, oh, okay. uh, you know it's, mm-hmm. uh, i think it's a food for thought for all of us really um mm-hmm. that uh, you know we should also be looking after our physical health uh but uh, in in other news uh, before going into it um i did wanted to introduce 
two of the uh, two of the imams that we do have in the studio. Um, so what I do wanted to do now is that just pi- pass the mic on to uh, to them so they can just briefly introduce themselves. So um, first, first mm. uh, we do have with us Imam uh, Musharraf uh, Ahmed. So uh, yes, Imam Musharraf, if you could just introduce yourself. Assalamualaikum, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Good morning to everyone. My name is Musharraf Ahmed, and I'm serving as an Imam for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and uh, also a director of education for the Men's Auxiliary Organization for um, this community. Okay, perfect. And uh, if you can also explain some of the work that you do uh, with regards to the youth. Um, in regards to the youth, we travel, we have a whole team, a national team, and uh, we sometimes travel to different regions in regards to the education. And we are mainly um, concentrating on the religious side of education. Um, the auxiliary organization, it has uh, different departments, different directors, and uh, it has a different director for the secular lo- knowledge. Um, it has a director for sports. So many different directors, um, a financial director. And uh, it's uh, one of the largest uh, organizations um, in the Muslim community here in the UK and also around the world. Fantastic. Uh, I also wanted to mention here that uh, Imam Sharif Ahmed, he... Uh, he's also a colleague of mine, uh, and uh, we both of us serve in the Central Wakfino Department. And for mm-hmm. the listeners that don't know what the Central Wakfino Department is, this was a scheme which was uh, initiated in 1987 by the fourth Caliph, Hazrat uh, Mazat may Allah the Almighty have mercy on him. And the whole purpose of this scheme was that uh, parents, they dedicate their unborn child for, uh, for the community. Um, and uh, you know on a daily basis uh, you know we are seeing those figures of those uh, young children now becoming adults and uh, serving in various capacities um, so it's, it's very interesting to see so that itself uh, deals with a lot of uh, youth as well you know who are growing up uh, so that's also something that uh, I wanted to mention um, moving the uh, uh, discussion, um, we also have with us in the studio uh, Imam Asan Maksud. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Yeah. Um, as you have heard, my name is Asan Maksud, and I'm currently serving as an Imam in Al Fazl International, which is a newspaper of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, published twice weekly from the UK. Fantastic. And what what are some of the roles, daily roles and tasks that you have um, while being in this department? So Al-Fazl International is, as I've mentioned, is a newspaper of the Jamaat of the Ahmadiyya community. It was established in 1913 by the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya community. And since 1994, uh, uh, it, uh, in 1994, it was launched in the UK. And since then, it has been uh, being published from here. And uh, uh, regarding my daily tasks, um, are mainly um, keeping contact with the repre- representatives of Al Fazl throughout the world, and uh, getting uh, reports of the activities of the community, and uh, getting them ready for publication in Al Fazl. And and uh, you mentioned that this newspaper itself is for the 
Urdu speaking uh, community, right? It's uh, yes, it's just published in the Urdu language and its main purpose is to propagate the true message of Islam to the whole world. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, yeah, so the, these are uh, two, two uh, mm-hmm. imams who, um, in, mm-hmm. in on the long run, uh, they're going to be presenting alongside mm-hmm. us. So, uh, or taking over. <laughs> <laughs> or t- taking over. <laughs> take it, taking our seats. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, <coughs> right, so that's the... So what else do we have uh, as far as the community news is concerned? Yes, uh, so another uh, report I do want to mention is mm. uh, uh, on a weekly basis, uh, usually uh, we cover the virtual sitting His Holiness has with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community around the world. And uh, you know, it's every time uh, you, we do go through some of these reports, it's very faith-inspiring and we see that uh, you know His Holiness, how much love he has for the community and also at the same time how much love the community has for the for the caliph of the time and similarly one very recent sitting which his only has had was on the 1st of january 2023 um, and this sitting was with the members of the ahmadiyya muslim community uh, in morocco the executive comi- committee um, as well as the uh, the members of the lajna imala in, in morocco um so uh, just a little um, overview of that uh, of this uh, sitting uh, after conveying salam uh, the the caliph his holiness he led the everyone in sun and prayer and after that the members they had opportunity to, to introduce themselves and the work assigned to them and his holiness he actually addressed the national president of the community and asked his tour of uh, burkina faso uh, which had taken place and he replied that it had been very successful by the grace of Allah and he thanked His Holiness for sending him there. And His Holiness asked if he had enjoyed it, to which he replied in affirmative. And he also added that he had visited the Masur Eye Institute and found it to be a wonderful place. And he said that, then His Holiness said then, uh, then you should make one in Morocco. Um, with a smile and and the president replied that uh, God be willing inshallah uh, with Hazur's prayers um, so I mean it's it's very um, you know whenever we read these reports it's very interesting that uh, uh, His Holiness you know he's meeting uh, members of the community from around the world and this is the first virtual meeting he has had with the members of the Amdi Muslim community in Morocco uh, and and it's very faith inspiring as we see that uh, a lot of the times that uh, some of these members you know they did probably didn't have an opportunity to come to the UK to his to meet his holiness. Uh, however, now uh, the situation is that through virtual meet- meetings, these sittings, uh, it is possible for even those members that may be due to financial constraints they're not able to travel. They are able to meet. His Holiness through these virtual sittings. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention that if uh, any of our listeners do want to read more on this, they can go on alhakam.org, um, and also you can go on YouTube on MTA News. Uh, there you have a program called This Week with Hazur, and uh, you can see all of these virtual sitting His Holiness has with the members of the Amdi community around the world. Oh, thank you for that. Um, on to other news, um, what's uh, been dominating 
our uh, screens last year was uh, this conflict that has erupted in uh, in Ukraine, uh, the war and the invasion uh, of that uh, country. Um, now, uh, recent developments have suggested that um, the Russian president uh, has asked Ukraine to a 36-hour ceasefire on the Ukrainian front line. Uh, this is to be enacted over Christmas after instructing his defense minister to impose uh, this uh, ceasefire on his troops. Now, before we get listeners ringing in saying Christmas has already passed, um, that may be so in the West, but as far as the Russian uh, Orthodox Church is concerned, uh, that cr- their Christmas Day is celebrated on the 7th of January, uh, according to the Julian calendar. Uh, so this is why Russians are instigating a 36-hour uh, ceasefire starting today. Uh, but um, the Ukrainians are suspicious. Uh, the, their president, uh, Zelensky, said the truce was an attempt to stop his country's military advances in the eastern Donbass region and bring in more men and equipment. Uh, others are saying that it is not some kind of uh, a compassionate move by the uh, Russian president, but uh, he's simply bowing down to an appeal made from the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, uh, Patriarch uh, Kril had called for Christmas, for a Christmas truce to allow believers to attend church services for Orthodox Christmas. Now, some are also saying that any opportunity where the killing can stop should be taken up uh, to do so in order to fulfill, to fulfill one's religious uh, responsibilities or obligations uh, should be respected. Uh, the counter-argument to this, of course, is that the killing should have uh, or should be stopped permanently and the onus is on the Russian side to do so, who began with the invasion in the first place. Why just a three-day truce? Why not go for a permanent truce? Earlier, uh, Turkish President uh, Erdogan asked Mr. Putin to declare a unilateral ceasefire in uh, Ukraine uh, so that both sides could negotiate. So that also seems to have uh, fallen by the wayside. And a few hours after Russia's uh, ceasefire announcement, Germany said it would uh, follow the U.S. in providing uh, Patriot uh, air defense missile system to Ukraine. Germany also announced in a joint statement with the U.S. that both countries would send armored vehicles. France said that on Wednesday uh, that it would uh, send armored fighting vehicles. Uh, Kiev has, uh, or Kiev has repeatedly called for more aid from its international allies in the face of continuing Russian aggression. It seems that there is not um, enough movement as far as uh, uh, diplomacy and trying to stop the conflict. Uh, There seems to be a lot of progress being made in fueling the conflict by providing arms and uh, missiles. And so this is uh, uh, should give us uh, some cause for concern. Uh, more effort towards peace is something that is required. Uh, and we hope that that is something that can be achieved uh, in the very near future. Because of the ramifications it has on the uh, wider uh, scheme of things, uh, we have a crisis when it comes to f- uh, fuel and that is very much uh, being attributed to the conflict that is uh, being uh, enacted in uh, in that part of the world. So let's hope that uh, peace can be um, uh, can be sourced very very quickly. Um, the other big story, uh, or the, the story that should be quite big, is about uh, the new COVID variant. 
uh, we may have got rid of the COVID restrictions, but sadly we're not rid of the menace of COVID just yet. A uh, new variant, now this is uh, a bit of a strange um, name that has been uh, given to it. It's XBB.1.5. Uh, uh, now that's the one that is doing the rounds currently. It's an offshoot of the globally dominant Omicron uh, COVID variant. Uh, Omicron was outperformed uh, the earlier Alpha, Beta, Gamma and Delta coronavirus variants since emerging in late 2021. Uh, and uh, the symptoms are very similar. Um, they're cold-like symptoms, we're told. And this particular uh, COVID variant started circulating in the UK in September 2022, just three, four months ago. Uh, Professor Wendy Barclay from Imperial College London said, uh, about this variant, uh, XBB.1.5. It doesn't quite flow on the tongue, does it? Oh, uh, anyway, it's, she says that uh, this mutation <laughs> uh, restores the ability of the uh, of uh, the virus to bind to cells while continuing to, to evade immunity. Uh, so that makes it spread more easily. Uh, she said that evolutionary changes like this are stepping stones as the virus evolves to find new ways of bypassing the body's defense systems. Uh, the Welcome Sanger Institute in Cambridge is sequencing at least 5,000 COVID samples a week as part of continuing efforts to track variants. And uh, the Institute's... Um, Dr. Ewan Harrison thinks that this particular variant, XBB.1.5, probably emerged when someone got infected with two different Omicron types. A bit of the genome from one virus gets joined up with the other bit from uh, a second virus, and they merge, and that goes on to transmit. That's what uh, Dr. Harrison has said. So I hope everybody remembers now, XBB 1.5. Anyway, the World Health Organization has confirmed that this particular variant has a growth advantage over other subvariants seen so far. But uh, uh, World Health Organization has also said that uh, there was no indication so far that it was more serious or harmful than previous Omicron variants. And the government is certainly wary of the danger but would be loath to instigate another lockdown. However, we, the authorities have recommended that we restart putting on masks in public again. Uh, so that's uh, uh, wise advice. Here in the mosque uh, and in all of our mosques in the Amdi Muslim community, we're still being uh, advised to take uh, precautions, still being advised to protect uh, us and others by the wearing of masks, not to attend uh, prayer services if we are uh, suffering from uh, cold-like symptoms and uh, to be careful all around. And that's very wise advice, and I'm sure it is something that is being heeded. Uh, Imam Toki mentioned earlier about uh, the uh, weather uh, and what is also uh, uh, very apparent that uh, there is uh, global warming taking place. 2022 apparently was the hottest uh, year that we've had. Temperatures rose, was it by 10 degrees centigrade? Mm. From And that's something uh, that is causing concern. Uh, Dr. Mark McCarthy, head of the Met Office, uh, said, although an arbitrary number, the UK surpassing an annual average temperature of 10 degrees centigrade is a notable moment in our climate uh, climatological history. This moment comes as no surprise since 1884, 
all the 10 years recording the highest annual temperature have occurred from 2003. It is clear from the observational record that human-induced global warming is clearly impacting the UK's uh, UK's climate. So we have we've been very naughty, haven't we? As a, as a <laughs> if I can put it that way, as a global community, I mean, we keep on uh, uh, what, uh, using uh, fossil fuels, uh, and we keep on uh, <laughs> you know, what is cutting down our rainforests, mm. keep on uh, failing to uh, adhere to our promises made at. Uh, climate conferences and uh, we are clearing uh, our way towards um, uh, a great deal of difficulty in the the future. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned COVID as well that is currently on the rise. So I just wanted to, uh, you know, it's just a prayer from from us as well that, you know, may (laughs) God Almighty protect all those uh, that are uh, suffering from any sort of illness uh, and, you know, may protect us all. Um, yeah, and, and with that, uh, uh, let's move swiftly on now to our first segment. Um, and we are discussing our New Year's resolution. Are they powerful or are they po- pointless? Um, we will be going uh, more deeply into the discussion with our uh, guest, uh, with our experts um, as well. But I do want to uh, give the mic on to Brother Billy to please, uh, if he can go through the gist of the story for us uh, until we... Uh, get our first expert on. Fine. Um, so this is something we picked up from uh, the BBC website. It's uh, uh, entitled Are New Year's Resolutions Powerful or Pointless? Uh, and it's something that uh, uh, we can give a brief summary of. It's uh, The website says that the 1st of January may seem like an arbitrary day to start self-improvement, but there are good psychological reasons for doing so. For those who don't follow this tradition, the very act of creating a New Year's resolution can seem illogical. Rationally speaking, 1st of January should be no better than any other day to make a life change. So why put the needless pressure on ourselves to upgrade our lives at the opening of a new calendar? Recent psychological research, however, suggests that there uh, are many good reasons to begin a new regime on the first day of uh, a new year. And by uh, understanding and capitalizing on these uh, uh, mechanisms, we can uh, inc- all increase our chances of sticking to our new goals for 2022. Uh, it is, it's hard to, to pinpoint exactly our tradition of uh, making New Year's resolutions or when it was first established. Uh, Anna uh, Katharina Schaffner a cultural historian and author of The Art of Self-Improvement, notes literary references to self-improvement go back centuries to Chinese antiquity and the Roman Stoics. For example, the uh, practice of pegging goals to a particular calendar date was already well established by the 1860s as seen in one of Mark Twain's uh, uh, letters. Some clues... Uh, uh, from uh, come from the way the brain organizes its uh, memories. Psychologists have found that rather than seeing our life as a continuum, we tend to craft a narrative divided into separate chapters that mark the different stages of our life. People tend to think, uh, we are told, that uh, uh, regarding life as if 
their characters in a book. Uh, so this is uh, what uh, uh, Katie Milkman has suggested. She's a, psych- a psychology professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the book, How to Change. Now, those chapters, she says, may characterize major life events, such as arriving at university, getting married, or the birth of your first child. But your mind can also split those major chapters into smaller sections so that the start of uh, a new year can uh, can represent a break in the narrative. Anytime, she says, you have a moment that feels like a, a division of time, your mind does a special thing where it creates a sense that you have a fresh start, uh, you're turning the page, you have a clean slate, it's a new beginning. So this is what uh, the psychology, psychology professor is saying, Katie Milkman. Um, and as further evidence, uh, the professor says, uh, Reese and Dye tested whether they could uh, prime the fresh start effect artificially. To do so, the researchers first invited uh, participants to sign up for an email reminder of their goals with subtle differences in the way they framed the date. Consider one reminder sent on 20th March. For some students, the date was simply labeled the third Thursday in March, hardly a significant landmark. For others, it was called the first day of spring, which they hoped would provoke the sense of a new beginning. The students who had been encouraged to think of a fresh start based around a temporal landmark were more likely to start a new gym habit, improve their sleep hygiene, or spend less time on social media compared to those who had been primed to see the date as a marked and significant division in the timeline. The new year, of course, is an especially compelling starting point compared to those other events. It is a big chapter break for most people, says the psychology professor. Any journey worth uh, pursuing will include a few bumps along the way. But by understanding the psychology of uh, personal change, you can vastly increase your chances of reaching the goal. Now, we did speak to a few people as well, and we do have... uh, Uh, Well, we're hoping to be joined by an expert on uh, the line as well. So, uh, over to you. Absolutely, yeah. We're just waiting for uh, one of our guests. I just wanted to read out the introduction as well before we do get him on. Abdul Haq Compier, and he's a physician, a psychiatrist, a designer, and a writer of Al-Islam magazine for 10 years published on religion and history in Dutch newspapers for Al-Islam, E-Gazette, and at the universities of Cambridge and Exeter in England. Um, yeah, but, so, but before we do get into that, um, New Year's resolution, um, you know, we, we all make them. We we all, uh, whenever that New Year comes, all of us, <laughs> mm. we sit down, we, we think about it, and we say to ourselves that, you know what, uh, no, no more. No more eating from us, and no, no more of those burgers or um, <laughs> those donuts, those cakes. So um, we <laughs> we we all we all make those New Year's resolutions. But the question is, do do we commit to them? Um, are we really fulfilling them? And one thing is very interesting is that while while listening to His Holiness Hazrat uh, may Allah strengthen his hand is something which he highlighted that uh, although you know we do 
have goals in terms of how we want to be within our within our life in our worldly aspect um his holiness a lot of the times um and especially uh, in this Friday sermon which he delivered on the 30th of December 2016 he highlighted that uh, you know we should also um look after evaluate ourselves self evaluate ourselves in how much have we truly uh, increased within our spirituality i mean i i will uh, uh, we will look more into this Friday sermon as of his holiness as well but uh, uh i am told uh by the tech team that we are joined by our first guest so uh, brother vilith ot no thank you much uh, uh mr compier thank you very much for joining us on the on the breakfast show yes assalamu alaikum uh, thank you for having me no thank thank you thank you for uh, joining us uh, today um uh, tell me you know we're discussing new year's resolutions as a psychiatrist what impacts uh, do making new resolutions have on people and if they're not achieved if they're you know abandoned after a few days uh, do they cause more more problems more distress yes uh, interesting question uh, you know uh, so as a psychiatrist uh, i treat mental illness and um, and it's not like um, that i'm getting loads of uh, patients uh, after the after uh, Uh, sometime in January uh, mm. that they become ill from uh, their new year's uh, new year's uh, resolutions but uh, uh, on the other hand it is a very good question um uh, so um well i think that uh, people uh, who make a plan for themselves to do something and then fail uh, it will cause of course some uh, drop in their self esteem mm and uh, it will you know if you're serious about it and it doesn't work then it will of course create feelings of uh, depression as well mhm but i mean what i'm really i think driving at is as is seeking to know do you think that overall um, making such resolutions is a good thing or should we just not not bother yeah um so um So let me think uh, so I think that as Muslims we are reminded all the time that our our life is passing <coughs> and uh, that we reflect on the months that have passed uh, and these there are several times in the year where we do that like Eid or Jalsa Salana and uh, and Hazur encourages us all the time to uh to reflect on ourselves and to work on on self uh, reformation and uh and it, i think uh, it is very important to make plans to improve yourself and to uh, work on yourself and to progress and uh, meaningful moments can help you reform yourself um but uh, we have to understand that reforming yourself it does take a lot of trouble it's not just that we say something that now we are going to change this and then it is changed it's it's very hard work mm, mm. do you think new year's resolutions uh, are the best way to improve uh, the outcome of uh, a year or are there other ways that we could uh, we could utilize to achieve our goals yeah so so i think uh, you know 
I think uh, some some meaningful moments can help you to reflect on yourself and to work on uh, on progress of yourself. Um, and maybe for some people, then then going into a new year would be a meaningful moment. Um, but on the other hand, uh, maybe so for me personally, going into from one year to another, it is not the most meaningful. So I would rather do this on uh, events like Eid or Jalsa Salana. Um, but, uh, you know, at any time where you can reflect on yourself and try to improve yourself is, of course, uh, a, a time well spent. Mm. And uh, the the only thing is that, um, you know, as I said, it is uh, hard work. So the, I want to also remind that the Promise from Sayyid al-Islam wrote very nicely in his uh, book uh, to advise the youth mm-hmm. that uh, making a plan to improve yourself is really important. Right. And it is actually the the difference between uh, being in a state of uh, nafsa amara, so the uh, the soul that is inclined to evil. And mm-hmm. uh, it is the difference from that and the nafsa lavama, the soul that uh, uh, that improves itself, that is uh, retributing itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so this, uh, Prophet Sallallahu Islam said that this is very a big step, a very uh, important step. And um, so this is the most important thing. I think Muslims can, will do this probably like every day. Uh, you know, uh, I even remember Umar radiallahu anhu every day would, I think, talk to his stick to, to ask himself uh, if he did what he did in the day was right mm. or not. Mm. Mm. And, uh, I think as Muslims we should do it every day mm-hmm. and understand that it is really hard work. It is not just saying something as if it is a magic wand. Mm. Do you think, I mean, uh, from your psychiatric background, do you think that this is part of the human condition to an innate desire within the human condition to want to improve? and to take steps to improve. And what you are talking about, Islam, <clears throat> and the teaching of Islam, is just a way of channeling that innate desire. Would that, would that uh, be a fair statement to make? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's a very beautiful aspect of, uh, of humanity, hmm. that we're always looking for, for progress and to uh, increase our... Um, you know, our consciousness of God, maybe some people are not aware of it, maybe some people who are not believing God are still doing that by other means, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, by just increasing in their knowledge or increasing in their skill, which is all, in one way you can say it is also an increase in awareness of God, Um, you know, in God's attributes. Okay. And uh, well, it is a very beautiful aspect of humanity, definitely. And you know, when this is uh, is obstructed, when this innate uh, innate longing for mm. improvement is obstructed, then maybe you can say that this is a moment where people can also become mentally ill, and oh. then they come to me. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. 
Um, now, you mentioned uh, the founder of the Muslim community and uh, what is it, these conditions, Nafsi Lawama and Nafsi Amara. You're talking about spirituality. How, how, how do you think we can increase spirituality in the new year? Yeah, okay, so I think I uh, I, I mistook, mistook the two terms just now, eh, when I said, mm-hmm. so Nafsa uh, Lovama is the uh, state in which uh, is the better state, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. We've got uh, a, a, a team of Murabis here. Is that correct, uh, Iman Tokir? That seems to be correct. So, so the, there are three stages. Um, you have... Uh, Lafse Lawama, Lafse Mutmaina, Mutmaina is the top. Mutmaina is the top one, yeah. and then you have the first stage where uh, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, explains that you know this itself is a situation of someone who maybe has uh, a lot of worldly inclinations mm-hmm. um, and he is not able to do justice to his spirituality, he's not able to incline towards God Almighty. And then you have the second stage where the person that uh, he does incline towards God Almighty, mm-hmm. but then he stumbles mm-hmm. um, and uh, he then tries to regain strength and then move towards his mm-hmm. spirituality. And then the last stage, Nafsi Mutmayna, is that person who has ultimately reached that stage of spirituality where you know God Almighty says regarding him that uh, God is pleased with him and uh, he is pleased with with God uh, that is the state where you know that that person has reached so these are the three uh, different stages which the promised Messiah peace be upon him has explained in uh, in in his book in the philosophy and the teachings of Islam mm-hmm. I mean this is just uh, a brief uh, introduction uh, but the promised Messiah peace be upon him he's gone in very much in depth and he's explained these three stages mm-hmm. right. Yeah, right, Imam, if you can just carry on with the questions um. yes uh, yes uh, thank you uh, brother Abdul Haq I, I wanted to ask you um, you know we've we've looked at spirituality um, and how we can, ex- uh, you know, increase within our spirituality in the new year. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, regarding the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, the Almighty be upon him, and the companions of the Promised Messiah, you know, how did they increase in spirituality uh, every year? If you can please uh, narrate some incidents which shows their love for Allah the Almighty. Yeah. So, as I said, I think that... Um that um, as Muslims we we try to increase every day and every moment, um, and uh, even, and the companions would be even you know they would be the best at this because they are the signs, uh, they are the the miracles and the signs of the of the prophets. You know how they improve themselves from. Um, uh, you know, from uh, human beings uh, into saintly people, and well, the the incidents that um, I love very much and which are uh, also related to this topic, I think that one incident is uh, when uh, the Muslims abandoned the drinking of alcohol. Right, that uh, that they were. Um, I think it was like that they were. Um, busy drinking alcohol at some point and then uh, a word came 
to them that uh, the Prophet Muhammad, uh, that uh, Allah had uh, prohibited alcohol. That uh, revelation was sent to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam about uh, prohibition of alcohol. And some people were saying, "Well, let's let's wait and find out if it is true." But there were also other people who said, "No, first we stop and then we find out if find out it's true." Mm. Um, and they just uh, threw all the alcohol on the street, I think, and they just stopped immediately. And this is, you know, in the um, practice of uh, addiction uh, therapies, uh, this is a really amazing incident because uh, alcohol use is so difficult to uh, to stop. It is such a dangerous drug. And uh, these people, they because of this, uh, energy they got from their faith and from the companionship of uh, Prophet Muhammad they were able to stop immediately uh, which is amazing and I think in the Muslim world it has never been a big problem ever since you know there must have been incidents and people who were addicted but uh, in general the population was quite free from the harm of the alcohol so I, I love that uh, very much. And one other incident I had to think about was that I think there was a companion uh, who had a habit of asking people for help all the time. And uh, at some point, uh, Prophet Muhammad said to him that uh, don't ask anybody for help anymore. And this uh, companion, he took it so seriously that he really didn't ask anything anymore from anybody. Uh, and there was this incident where he sat on his horse and then he dropped something uh, from his horse and some other person was standing on the floor and uh, uh, he wanted to help the companion to pick up this thing that he dropped. But then the companion said, no, I will come down for my horse and I will pick it up myself because I I." Uh, I promised to Muhammad that I would never ask anybody anything from anybody anymore. And uh, I think these are uh, these incidents are um, showing how much uh, motivation and energy uh, the Prophet Muhammad gave, and uh, inshallah that we can also get the same from our religion and our uh, relation with our Khalifa. Absolutely, thank you so much. Uh, for that very informative uh, interview, um, uh, Brother Abdullah. Now, before we do uh, conclude this, I do wanted to ask within uh, the Netherlands, uh, can, if you can also brief us about the very recent new Islamic radio station uh, in Netherlands, which is operating 24-7, if you can just uh, let our listeners know about that, please. Yes, Jazakallah. Uh, so, um, you know... Uh, the Voice of Islam in UK has done such beautiful work over the years. Uh, we have really seen you, your channel, improving, you know, from the beginning uh, until now, where you are making such inspirational programs, and you are uh, you are doing such a professional job in all the uh, edit, editorial preparations and in your teamwork. So it's really so beautiful to see. And uh, Alhamdulillah, we were able in the last uh, few months to establish the technological basis of the uh, web radio station in Holland. 
and it's called the stem from the islam so it's uh, the direct translation of the voice of islam uh, and so at this moment we are um, doing a few programs live and other programs we are doing recorded they're being broadcast 24 7 and um, along that we had uh, uh, we we had um, a lot of inspiration uh, from you and uh, we're hoping to uh, you know do the same great job as you have done over the past years and please pray for us that uh, we will be able to. Um, God Almighty enable you to you know, spread the true teachings of uh, Islam um, within Holland. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fantastic, uh, you know, hearing this, that uh, also there's a radio station which has been inaugurated within within Holland as well. Uh, just finally on that, if you can just, any of the listeners that do want to tune in, they do want to listen, how, how can they do so? Ah, uh, yes. Um, okay, so at this moment it is a web radio station. Uh, if you would uh, visit our website uh, islamnu.nl uh, is, so it is Islam and an N of um, uh, of nights and the uh, uh, you of uh, you know you um, uh, use uh, dot nl of Netherlands. Uh, so if you go to the website, you will see uh, an icon, and then you can go to the either the website or you can download the uh, app for your smartphone. Fantastic! Thank you so much, Abdul Haq uh, Kompia. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station. Yeah, thank you so far, so much for having me. Uh, 0208687878 that's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us so we are uh, moving swiftly to the 8 o'clock news but uh, after the 8 o'clock news we do have with us two excellent uh, experts who will we will be listening to we will be listening to uh, Rachel Isep um, after the 8 o'clock news and uh, she is the time management coach, productivity consultant and organization expert alongside uh, being an author. We will also be listening to Dr. Sylvine uh, Charles Boyce and uh, she is also a professor, uh, director and argue food analyst um, uh, at uh, at the dean of uh, Sorry, uh, former Dean of the Faculty of Management. So that will be uh, after the 8 o'clock news, but uh, uh, don't go anywhere. We will be back shortly after this break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast with Voice of Islam. Uh, with me, Walid Ahmed, and Imam Tokit Anvir. The time is approaching 4 minutes past 8. It's Friday, the 6th of January 2023. As mentioned before the break, uh, we will be looking uh, to uh, glean what uh, uh, two of her experts who we talked to earlier have said about the subject we were discussing. The subject we were discussing 
was our New Year's resolutions powerful or pointless? So let's hear what Rochelle Isip had to say. Now, Rochelle, um, in case uh, the clip doesn't uh, share the introduction of uh, the uh, the uh, comment commentator, uh, she's a time management coach, a productivity consultant, and organization expert, alongside being an author. So we have with us today at the Voice of Islam radio station, Rochelle Isip, and you are a time management coach, productivity consultant, and organization expert alongside an author. Thank you for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So to start off, could you please tell us a little about yourself um, to our audience and also about the work you do in your consultancy? Sure. I help entrepreneurs, business owners, and professionals manage their time and energy so that they can reduce stress, work less, and make more money in their businesses and careers. I offer a variety of consulting, coaching, and training services and products to help people work more efficiently in their daily routines. Fantastic. And also in your professional opinion, um, do you think New Year's resolution, they're useful in terms of productivity? I definitely think New Year's resolutions are useful in terms of productivity. The New Year is a great time to upgrade your mindset, and there's just naturally lots of positive outlook, optimism, and hope. And, you know, it's those things that always keep us moving forward, whether we decide to set New Year's resolutions for ourselves on January 1st, or whether we decide to do something for ourselves later on in the year. And also, is there a better alternative to, do, to New Year's resolution which has a better chance of being achieved or not neglected? Yes, I think reframing your resolution is a great first start. So as opposed to viewing your resolution as an all-or-nothing approach, to view it as a series of mini-habits that you're going to create for yourself. So habits are what make up and shape our lives. And the right habits will help you move closer to reaching your goals, while the wrong ones will move you further away. So, for example, if you have a resolution to get more sleep in the new year, as opposed to just saying, I'm going to get more sleep in the new year, make a little habit for yourself. You can set a reasonable bedtime for yourself every night and keep to it. Um, You can also do things like watching your caffeine intake, for example, or recognizing when your body is tired and noticing that you need perhaps more sleep that night than others. Thank you. And Rochelle, in your opinion, what makes a good New Year's resolution and how to maintain consistency in achieving these goals? I think a good resolution should be smart, just like when we're setting smart goals. So that means to be specific measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. You have to have a specific goal in mind. What do you exactly want to accomplish? You should also be able to measure your resolution. It could be measured in days, weeks, months, kilograms, or kilometers. And it should also be achievable. It should be physically attained or attainable in our world. And it should also be realistic. You need to give yourself enough time to change your habits, make adjustments so that you can actually reach the goal. 
And lastly, it should be time bound. You need to give yourself a specific deadline so you can work towards reaching the goal. Otherwise, it will be something that just goes on forever and ever. And I also think that consistency really is key and being aware that your progress is in those daily steps. You know, it's, it's common nature for people to um, get upset when they reach a roadblock or challenges. But what really matters is you realizing that the roadblock is just part of the process. And the sooner you can pick yourself up after, you know, a circumstance or event that didn't go quite as planned, the better off you'll be. So I really think, you know, that consistency, um, picking yourself up if you fall off um, and just starting over again, that's really is what gonna is what's going to make it for you. And I just wanted to add on to that question, Rochelle, what if someone keeps trying but they're not achieving their goals and consistently they keep falling off? How would you, what would you advise there? Sure. So if people are having trouble reaching their goals, the first step is to do a survey and be completely honest with yourself of what it is that you're doing or not doing. Are the actions or habits that you're taking supporting the goals? or are they not? And the more honest you can be, the better off you will be because you'll have that information and knowledge you can use um, to help you actually reach the goal. And if you're still having difficulty or trouble, then you might want to get some help. You know, it could be from a coach, a guide, a mentor. They may be able to point things out to you that you may not be seeing, you know, in your day-to-day approach. And Like I said earlier, the thing, too, is to not give up. You know, we can always try and keep moving forward, and that's really what's going to accomplish our goals. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Um, Rachel Isip, time management coach, productivity consultant, and organization expert alongside an author. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station and sharing your expertise on this particular subject. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Right, so that was uh, uh, Rochelle Isip, uh, and uh, I think um, her credentials were mentioned uh, more than once. Uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois also spoke to us. Uh, uh, Dr. Sylvain is a professor and uh, a former uh, dean of the Faculty of of, uh, Management. So this is what um, Dr. Charlebois had to say. So joining me on the line today, we have Dr. Silva Charlebois. Dr. Silva uh, Charlebois is a professor and director at Agri-Food Analytics Lab. And uh, Dr. Charlebois actually conducts some research in the broad area of food distribution, security, and safety. He has also written four books and many peer-reviewed and scientific articles. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Dr. Charlebois, how are you today? Very good. Happy New Year. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you. Um, so, I mean, you have very um, an interesting um, description of what you do. Could you please just tell us a bit more about yourself and the kind of work that you do? Yes, of course. Uh, so I became an academic about 25 years ago, and my focus of research is, has been on, on food systems, but particularly uh, on food uh, policy and strategy. So, 
So, uh, and I, I've created a, a lab uh, which allows our team to do uh, to conduct some uh, some studies on a variety of issues uh, related to food systems in Canada and abroad. And so we've worked with uh, governments, uh, NGOs, uh, uh, companies in the private sector. Uh, so we we work mostly in Canada and the U.S., but we've actually done some some projects in in, uh, in Europe uh, over the last uh, decade or so. So we've been quite busy uh, as a result of the pandemic, uh, and and of course uh, the the food inflation situation that is impacting the Western world has also kept us very, very busy. Um, no, you touched upon the pandemic there. I mean, and, you know, as you quite rightly mentioned at the beginning, it's the start of the year. What do you think will be some of the challenges uh, in the coming year regarding food security that you think our listeners should be aware of? Um, well, I think I think climate change is a constant. Uh, without being a constant, it really is impacting our ability to grow more food. Uh, we are seeing some regions doing better than others, uh, but essentially uh, when you see uh, geopolitical uh, events like uh, Ukraine, for example, you do wonder how resilient supply chains are for, uh, for different markets. And so predictability is probably the big issue here right now because a lot, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of uh, there's there's been a lot of concerns around um, uh, geopolitical um, stresses, how governments will react to what is going on, and of course, uh, growing food all over the world. It's uh, and trades. Uh, there's this. There seems to be this momentum towards uh, the localization of food systems. And um, certainly over the last several decades, uh, the world has actually become much more trade focused. And, uh, and we believe that it, is, it has helped uh, food security, global food security overall. It has made more people food secure. So uh, I think what is going to be challenging is to establish a delicate balance between policies that will support uh, the localization of food versus global trades, because uh, I don't think that uh, co- countries will stop trading. It's just you have to strike the right balance uh, to to make sure that uh, that uh, food remains affordable around the planet. And um, you know, you mentioned some of you know the current situation and current world climate. Uh, what new technologies are are, are you using or um, are uh, is, is being used by yourself to help combat food insecurity currently, and how effective have you found those strategies and those uh, tools? Well, at the lab, we obviously we focus on uh, on data science and, and the use of analytics. Uh, that is essentially what we do, and it w- the reason why we do that is to uh, is to forecast and predict what lies ahead and. Uh, what we've noticed is that more and more companies, more and more uh, policymakers are uh, are focused uh, on on knowing what is going to happen. Uh, without knowing, it's much more difficult to uh, to um, predict and set uh, set forth policies that actually make sense. So 
that's what we do. And uh, it, it seems that uh, that more and more um, organizations are actually looking at empowering themselves with better data science. Um, thank you for that. And, and what do you think can be done at a national and international level to reduce food, uh, food waste and ensure safety? Um, I, I think, I mean, essentially what's important is to is to look at all elements of the supply chain and see exactly how waste waste can be reduced and uh, i think at different levels you need a, a different approach and uh, of course logistics are a big key of that uh, how do you move products as quickly as possible how do you produce food as closely as possible to markets you want to service uh, and that's why technologies like vertical farms uh, also uh, greenhouses are are becoming more popular. Any any projects related to control environment agriculture can certainly help uh, with uh, with uh, with waste. And of course, at the consumer level, this is probably the biggest point: uh, giving a chance to uh, to consumers and to companies to rescue food, quote unquote food is probably going to be a focus for the next little while. Brilliant. Um, Dr. Charles Boy, it's been really interesting talking to you and thank you for giving us an insight into the excellent work that you're doing. Uh, but for now, peace be upon you. Keep up the great work and we hope you have a great day. Thank you very much. All the best. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Have, have a great day. Bye for now. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. So that was uh, the interview with uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. And uh, uh, very interesting, I must uh, say, regarding the subject that we are discussing, the uh, way to celebrate the new year. Uh, in a few minutes' time, we'll be uh, looking at the Islamic uh, uh, angle to this. Uh, now, we've um, got um, um, something from uh, the sermon of uh, His Holiness Hazrat Mizabur Ahmed head of the Amdiya Muslim community. And uh, this is something that we've taken from that. It was delivered on the 30th of December, 2016. Um, so, uh, Imam Tokir, over to you as to what this uh, had to say. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, topic and His Holiness, uh, within this Friday sermon, uh, you know, he highlights the fact that uh, usually on the New Year's, what we generally see is that people um, on the New Year's, they party or they consume heavy amounts of alcohol. Um, although, you know, th there are good things as well. You know, people uh, have resolutions. You know, they, they sit down and they say, all right, how they, are they going to improve the the next uh, the, the next year? His um, Holiness here, uh, you know, he highlights the fact that uh, as a Muslim, it's very important that we should all evaluate ourselves, self-evaluate ourselves. And if, you know, if we are not progressing within ourselves spirituality and we are trying ourselves, then we should pray to Allah the Almighty that, uh, you know, he stops any hurdles which will be uh, a means to, to stop our spiritual enhancement. Um, he says, and I quote from this, that... Uh, what we have earned and lost through this year, will the true believer evaluate the year through a worldly lens or will it be through religious and spiritual perspective? And if it has to be on the spiritual scale, 
then need to look into the standard of it so that it can truly reveal what has been lost and what has been gained. We MDs are very fortunate that Allah has given us the instruction of the fol- of the following <coughs> of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. He presented to us the summary of the teachings of Allah and his Prophet, peace be upon him, and showed us the high standards to evaluate our deeds and spirituality. And if this standard is kept in assessment, then we can surely achieve the standard of the true believers. And these are the conditions to rightly guide your standard of good deeds. And every Ahmadi undertook the bed, the the oath of allegiance. And thus, through this, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, gave us the instructions to follow and thus also expected from every Ahmadi to self-evaluate themselves every day, every week, every month and every year. So... His Holiness, he highlights that, uh, you know, we we should self-evaluate ourselves. And, uh, you know, if we we do uh, evaluate ourselves, then, you know, it'll help us within our own spirituality. And here I I wanted to also mention that uh, when it comes to spirituality, who better to uh, look at than the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, ourselves? Um, and regarding the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, it says in the Holy Quran that Innaka la'ala khulukin azim, that and thou dost surely possess high moral excellences. And this is from uh, chapter 68, verse 5, uh, saying that, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him himself, was the rahmatul mean the mercy for all of mankind. And if we look to his life, it is a great, uh, great uh, moral conduct for all of us and, and that we should learn from. And through this, we find how we find, you know, how we should live our lives and how much love we should put to Allah and how much trust we should put in him. And I and here, um, as we are concluding this segment, I wanted to read out a few narrations of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and his great resolve for, or his great trust in Allah the Almighty and his love he had in remembering him. So there is one uh, particular incident which is found that, uh, and and uh, it is narrated, and this is from Malfuzat volume 1, it says that, and I quote that, one of the miracles of the Holy Prophet, the chief of the messengers, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, in the way of moral miracles is that once the Prophet of Islam lay asleep under a tree, when suddenly he was awoken by a hue and cry, and upon waking he noticed a Bedouin of the desert standing above him, sword in hand, who said, O Muhammad, tell me who can save you from my hands? And he replied, the Prophet of Islam, he replied, Allah. And with the complete satisfaction and true repose that he was blessed with, the response of the Prophet was not superficial as others would say. The name Allah, which is the personal name of God Almighty, and which is the compendium of all perfect attributes, came forth from the mouth of the Messenger with such heartfelt emotion that it touched the heart of the Bedouin. And it is said that this is the greatest name. It is the Isma'azam of God and it possesses the tremendous blessings. 
But as for one who does not remember, even remember Allah, what benefit can such a one deprive from this name? Hence, the word Allah was uttered by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and in such a way that the Bedouin was struck by awe, and his hand began to tremble, and his sword fell to the ground. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, then took hold of the same sword and said, Now you tell me, who can save you from my hands? Could this weak-hearted desert nomad of the desert name? Ultimately, the Holy Prophet, peace be and blessing of Allah be upon him, exhibited his sublime virtues and said, Go, I release you. Learn of clemency and bravery from me. The miracle of morality had such an influence on this man that he became a Muslim. So, such a great incident of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that uh, even at a such a vulnerable time, he had complete trust in Allah the Almighty. And when that Bedouin put that sword uh, to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that, who will save you now? And, you know, his sheer trust in Allah the Almighty, you know, and uh, in, his, in his calm voice, he said that, you know, Allah, Allah the Almighty will save me. So this had such a profound effect on the Bedouin that uh, he dropped his sword and uh, you know he was he was amazed at how much trust he, the the whole prophet had in Allah the Almighty that this incident you know um, this incident itself um, he later became Muslim because of it uh, and if we look at other narrations of the Holy Prophet uh, peace and blessings of Allah the Almighty be upon him. Um, we we know that he prayed to Allah the Almighty very fervently, and he would, uh, apart from the five daily prayers, he would also uh, get up uh, uh, late. Uh, he would also get up at night uh, and remember Allah the Almighty, uh, and this is called the voluntary prayer. And in one narration, it is narrated that his wife, Hazrat Aisha, peace be upon him, on her up on her, she said to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that. God has honored you with his love and nearness. So why then do you subject yourself so much discomfort and inconvenience? The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he replied that if God has by his grace and mercy conferred his love and nearness upon me, it is it not my duty in return to always rendering thanks to him? Gratitude towards in should increase in proportion to the favors received. And this is recorded in, in Bukhari. Uh, also, it is narrated at one place that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he did not approve of prayers or worship being carried out on as a penance or imposition. And on one occasion, he came home and he observed that a rope uh, dangling between two pillars and he inquired what its purpose was and was informed by that his wife, Zainab, peace be upon her, was in the habit of supporting herself by means of the rope when she became tired in the course of her prayers. And he directed the rope to be removed and said that prayers should be continued only so as long one felt easy and cheerful and that if a person became tired, he should sit down. And prayers were not an imposition and if carried on, after the body became fatigued, they failed of their purpose. Of their purpose, and this also recorded in Bukhari. So, um, I think with with these narration, uh, we'll we'll conclude this uh, this segment. Um, and you know, 
th- th- this itself is a great uh, great guidance for all of us that uh, you know this is um the level of piety and the level of righteousness we should try to inculcate within our lives so may allah the almighty enable us to do so uh, and then with that we'll, we'll conclude this thank you very much imam taqi wonderful stuff there um thank you very much is wonderful great way to uh, conclude that particular topic about uh, um new year's resolutions and um the topic of uh, reformation reforming yourself trying to improve yourself all the time um we now um, are moving on to the second of our main topics it's about um substance abuse and uh, the title is high school program linked to local to lower substance abuse um and it's uh, something that we picked up from the science daily uh, website uh, concerning uh, the average college prep program Uh, and uh, apparently it leads to lower substance use better health behaviors among high school students uh, significantly the findings suggest that academic tracking the practice of separating high and low performing students into different classes reinforces risky social networks and behaviors and the main discussing points that have been uh, called or taken from this uh, particular a uh, report or uh, particular press release is that the new UCLA led research uh, finds obviously talking about the avid college program uh, finds that a college preparatory program for youth experiencing educational inequities that operates in about 13% of US public high schools has a positive effect on students' social networks psychos uh, social outcomes and health behaviors avid works uh, with high school students earning b or c grade averages who might not otherwise be placed in more rigorous uh, college uh, preparatory uh, tracks uh, it operates in 5400 secondary schools including both middle and high school in 46 states and ex- exposes academically middling students to tougher courses than they would have been assigned to under normal circumstances avid helps students develop agency relational uh, capacity and opportunity knowledge uh, these researchers randomized 270 students in five large public school schools who were placed in either an avid group or in the usual uh, run of the mill school programs students uh, completed surveys at the end of eighth grade or beginning of ninth grade and again at the end of the ninth grade they found that students in the avid group had lower odds of uh, using substances at 33% reduced risk compared to the control group in addition to a 26% lower risk of associating with substance using um, peers and about 1.7 times the odds of socializing with peers who were more involved with academics so i hope you've uh, picked up and kept track of the figures that have been mentioned uh, in addition uh, avid males uh, experienced lower stress and a higher self efficiency determination and engagement with school than their peers who were assigned to the usual tracked uh, academic program these effects however were not seen among females possibly because supportive academic environment have a greater effect on boys of color uh, the researchers write 
The study has some limitations. The schools were all from a single school district and primarily served low-income Latino students, and the findings were all from one school year, the researchers note. They did not uh, directly observe how AVID was implemented or examined if the program actually increased college enrollment. In addition, it was not possible to blind the participants, meaning that students knew who was assigned to each group, which uh, could have led them to respond to survey questions in ways that they thought the researchers would uh, view favorably. Uh, Though more research is needed, the findings will still provide important evidence that ensuring schools have the um, resources and structures necessary to expand access to educational opportunities and facilitate healthy social connections, particularly in marginalized communities, uh, may be key to achieving education and health equity more broadly, the research is right. So there is an Islamic uh, perspective to this, and that's going to be offered by our uh, leading imam, Thokith. Uh, and we also have, I understand, uh, an expert who's going to be talking to us, and uh, that's going to be Al Jones. And I understand that she is on the uh, line. Thank you very much for joining us on The Breakfast Show. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Right. Um, so let me, if you don't mind, let me just go through your bio data just so that uh, our listeners are aware uh, of uh, your background. Uh, you were, uh, my notes tell me that you're a spoken word poet, an educator, a journalist, a community activist living in Africa, Nova Scotia, a fifth poet laureate of Halifax. Uh, in 2016, you're a recipient of the Burnley Rocky Jones Human Rights Award for uh, your community work and work in prison justice. And you're a co-founder of the Black Power Hour, a live radio show with uh, incarcerated people on CKDU that creates space for people inside to share their creative work and discuss contemporary social and political issues. And uh, you're a board member of East Coast Prison uh, Justice Society and of Wellness Within, which uh, advocates for the health of women, trans and non-binary people who are criminalized. A very impressive background, I must say, uh, Elle. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Right. Now, we're discussing the topic uh, topic of substance abuse among the young Um, How prevalent is this among the African and indigenous communities? And what is the history behind it? What is the reason behind it? Yeah, so actually what's interesting is that drug use actually seems to be higher in substance use often in white youth and in white people than black people. Um, So when studies are done, they often show higher rates in white people and higher rates of possession or at least constant rates. But black people are more criminalized. For that. Um, so this is one of the areas where you really see the impact of the way that policing and uh, criminal stigma actually, so you'll see black people far more involved in, for example, cannabis arrest, but in fact, drug use is often higher among white people. So this mm-hmm. is one area that really shows um, the difference in how the law is treated. Um, at the same time, of course, with, for example, indigenous people, of course, the effects of intergenerational trauma have really affected um, addiction rates. So in Canada with indigenous people, who, of course, experienced the residential school system, which was the forced generational um, children being forced into extremely abusive schools. Um, there's bodies still of, of kids being pulled up from these schools. 
So that impact that led to the breaking of families, um, there was high sexual and physical abuse. That has led to substance use rates among Indigenous people that reflect that trauma. And we do see similar patterns um, with Black people as well. So we know that uh, mental health, childhood trauma, early introduction to substance use, um, and economic status, all these things can affect how people experience drug use and addiction. Of course, the availability of treatment and the likelihood of criminalization for that as well. Mm. So you're saying that um, uh, drug use is more prevalent among the white uh, parts of the community, but is the uh, colored community that's criminalized more? Is that is that what you've uh, said? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, for example, among young people, drug use is actually down from the 1990s. Uh-huh. Um, and drug use actually went down, substance use actually went down during the pandemic, although it seems to be coming back up. Um, but what you won't see going down in particular is the criminalization of young or marginalized people. So mm. um, another good example is drug possession tends to hold us solid across all races. It tends to be equal or slightly more in white people. But you see a massive difference in who's actually arrested for things like cannabis use. So in my city, before we um, decriminalize drugs, so in Canada, obviously, we have legalization of cannabis, for example, for the last three years, four, uh, sorry, five years now, <laughs> it seems so long mm. ago, um, we, uh, we legalized cannabis. But right before that, black people were 50% of the stops for cannabis. Um, and so essentially what has happened is that drug use was more or less decriminalized among white people officially, unofficially, but yet still criminalized among black people. Um, and this is a pattern that we see across. So black people tend to get far more arrested for things like cannabis, um, will enter the system for cannabis, where white people are given the sort of benefit of boys will be boys, young people will be young people. It's just fun. So we see a huge difference in how people are criminalized for drugs. And then once we legalize, we did not see any reparation for that. So mm-hmm. even though black people had been highly criminalized, were holding criminal records as a result, um, there was no amnesty on records. Um, and then when they allowed things like dispensary selling so that we could then enter into the drug market, interestingly, what we saw is things like former police in Canada opening drug dispensaries who had formerly ran the war on drugs targeting black people, yet black people were not getting the licenses to sell. So black people got highly criminalized by marijuana or cannabis and then got no benefits once it was legalized. And we also see that pattern in the U.S. as well. Um, so what this shows, of course, is that it's not that black people use drugs higher. We're just more stigmatized for it and we're seen as responsible for drug use in particular ways. Hmm. Now, um, um, creating power. I mean, um, has the criminalization of drugs been used to create power and control? and marginalize and discriminate some communities. And how, how important is decriminalization in resolving this, this crisis? You remember, uh, you mentioned legalizing cannabis, for instance. Yeah, so the war on drugs, obviously, particularly since the 1970s, um, has contributed to the rising prison rates around the world, particularly in the U.S., obviously, but um, we see those rates around the world that starkly increase. And of course, black incarceration drives that increase. And in Canada, also indigenous incarceration as well. Um, we also see quite, uh, quite literally, for example, the criminalization of drugs is very much tied to the connection of drugs to racialized countries, 
the police, for example, still use marijuana and they'll spell it like that, like marijuana. Mm. And I was deliberately chosen to associate drug use with Mexico in the U.S. So mm. drug use comes from brown countries as opposed to alcohol, which is, in fact, of course, a substance that is most used in abuse that has been legalized since prohibition in the 1930s in the U.S., right? Um, so whereas alcohol is actually among the most dangerous and widely used substances, that was legalized where drug use is increasingly cracked down on and associated with black people um, and brown people. So mm. the very naming of drugs in the police was explicitly racialized in order to criminalize it. Um, we've often seen that also, of course, associated with um, racial contamination theory. So the idea that drug use comes from black communities, it makes its way into white communities, and it is also associated with a larger theory of racial contamination in general, which is the contact with blackness, whether that's black music, whether that's black culture, whether that's black people, has a contaminating factor, particularly on, say, like suburban white youth. And so this is, of course, a logic behind segregation, um, but also behind the discipline and control of black people through policing and prisons, the idea that we quite literally like pollute society. Um, so this is reflected in drug policy and, of course, has been a driving factor around the world in policing, in arming the police, in the building and filling of prisons by black people, the criminalization of black women through things like um, trafficking. Right. So black women who are extremely low level in the drug trade, but are used as drug mules. Um, receive very heavy sentencing for that. So when we look at the rates of incarceration of black women around the world, which are exploding, it's largely driven by black women being used in the drug trade, obviously impoverished black women, also from like Caribbean countries. Um, so highly behind um, this very strategic criminalization and imprisonment and policing of black people, and it very much drives this funding of the police. Mm. Um, in the UK, which has extremely conservative drug policies that are very much out of step with a lot of the rest of the world, um, where Canada has legalized, Portugal has decrim. Um, so where we're seeing a push in much of the rest of the world um, towards decriminalization, you see the UK conservative government calling for these harsh war on drugs policies, which contribute to incarceration, um, put a huge budget into policing, and do nothing to actually address the causes behind addiction and problematic drug use, which is socioeconomic and also social causes such as mental health and the lack of treatment. So it's completely out of step with any scientific or evidence-based policy that shows that if you want to address drug use, you invest in education, you invest in treatment, you invest in social support. Um, but you have the conservative government calling for a war on drugs, which all it will do is put far more money into prisons and policing and do nothing to actually address the problem. Mm. Um, you mentioned legalizing cannabis, which is something that uh, has happened for what, over five years now. Um, has it has it improved matters? Um, well, the problem in Canada is that we legalize, but actually in many ways increase the penalties. And so one of the readings of that is, again, that legalization for the middle-class white person and in, and in continued penal, penalization for those who live in like lower income or uh, racialized populations. So, um, for example, in Canada, when we legalize, we increase the driving penalties, and it allows the police to pull anyone over without suspicion, hmm. um, without any evidence. And so, our drug laws can be very much used to continue to traffic stop black people, for example. Hmm. Um, they very much increase the penalties for selling for young people. So, for example, an 18-year-old could be highly criminalized for selling to a 17-year-old. Um, so there's a lot of debate about whether legalization of cannabis in Canada was actually legalization. 
Um, I was on the Drug Decriminalization Task Force recently. And, of course, one of the areas as well that's very difficult is because the fear around decriminalization or legalization. The difference being decriminalization doesn't legalize, but it removes the penalties. That's what the difference is. Um, So one of the fears is always around young people, that if we legalize drugs or decriminalize drugs, young people get their hands on them. Um, So there's often a concomitant uh, investment in penalties for young people. Hmm. And part of the problem is, of course, that if you stigmatize this for young people, then young people can't seek help to substance use, and you're not addressing the causes that lead to youth using substances. So because there's a pushback publicly that people say, oh, you know, there's going to be drugs everywhere. Um, And we saw a lot of fear-mongering around that for, like, Halloween, for example, where now that cannabis is legalized, people are going to be giving out edibles to youth at Halloween. This is ridiculous, but we saw this moral panic. And so in return, you often see a kind of um, moral panic crackdown on on drug use among young people that actually stigmatizes drug use and prevents young people from actually seeking help. And that can, of course, cause a danger. And we're seeing a rise in drug use death among young people. And Mm. that's... Um, across countries. So it's vital that young people have the correct information, that harm reduction, so that people can use safely if they're going to use, um, things like safe supply, things like peer drug use sites. Um, these are all really important because drug use is more dangerous than ever with um, toxic drug supplies. And so we're seeing record amounts of deaths, even though substance use is down among young people compared to where it was in the 90s. Deaths are up. Drugs are far more dangerous. And that means that we have to invest in harm reduction. Um, but people are so scared to do that with young people because it's seen as encouraging young people to use substances. So um, decrim has to be obviously evidence-based, and it has to be instituted uh, properly. And that includes among young people as well. And that includes also things like um, people often think of uh, coerced treatment, right? So we're going to force people into treatment, and that can also have a negative effect, even though people may think it's positive. So um, those are some of the things that come along with decrim, um, like that need to be addressed as we think about how to actually address substance use in a productive way. No, good. Thanks very much. Uh, my colleague also has a couple of questions. Thank you for sure, joining. Thank you for joining us this morning, um, Elwood Jones. I wanted to ask you. Now we know uh, that obviously through various research and findings that these drugs are very harmful um, and I wanted to talk ask you more about the access to health care and support um, you know to come off these drugs is very important for you users do black and indigenous communities have equitable access to these and uh, is this improving we don't actually being in Canada we don't actually keep good race-based stats so I've had this question for a long time because we have drug courts um, so we have separate courts that you can enter if your issue is addiction-based. Um, now, there are critiques of that because drug use is a health issue. Substance use is a health issue. It is not a criminal issue. Um, and so really it should not be penalized through the court system at all. It should be between somebody and the medical provider. Um, so I think we need to also critique the use of drug courts, which often in some ways is seen as better than being in the perhaps the general criminal justice system. It can be more compassionate. It can offer paths to treatment. But also what it often does is make treatment mandatory. And relapse is part of, of recovery. People often don't recover in a linear way. They may recover and then have a relapse and then recover again. Um, so it often can take many relapses and people back and forth at that, which is a natural part of the recovery. 
if you criminalize that, so if you're in a drug court where, for example, you have to test clean, um, you can end up with criminalized penalties for having a relapse, which has nothing to do with your medical trajectory, but it's to do with the criminal system. So we do have to be careful there. And another issue is, of course, coerced uh, treatment. So if people aren't ready to go to treatment, but they're going because they're sent there by the court, um, that can often have a negative impact on their recovery. They end up leaving that treatment or not succeeding at that treatment. And then because they're in a court system, they can end up with a criminal penalty as a result. So drug courts, uh, we should be careful about their use. But even with that, um, I think it's quite clear that black people, for example, do not have equal access because, again, we're not seen as salvageable in the same way. So white people get a kind of benefit of the doubt in the criminal justice system. You know, they're seen as um, victims. They are seen as, um, you know, people who made mistakes. And black people, including black youth, are seen as, as um, natural criminals, right? So when we use drugs or if we have a problem that's caused from addiction or if we're committing crimes due to addiction, that's seen as like us. This is what black people do. And we need to be disciplined and put in prison because that's the place that really whip us into shape. It's a bit of a plantation mentality in that sense. Whereas white people are seen as having gone astray and actually coming from a good background and they just need recovery. Um, so we see a very different attitude towards young people towards those who are using substances. And so as a result, we get less access to treatment. We're much less given the benefits of doubt and we're assigned higher criminal penalties. Great. Thank you so much for that. And uh, just one final question from my, from my side and then I'll pass the mic on to uh, our host, Brother Valid. If you can just briefly explain that, how can we support those around us and are there any warning signs to look out for? Um, so early contact with substances is, is a huge risk factor in future addiction. Um, the younger that people begin using substances, the more likely they are to have sustained problems with them. Um, obviously, addiction is, is a health issue, so uh, trauma intersects heavily with, um, with future addiction and why people are using substances, so lack of access to treatment. Um, uh, any kind of background, socioeconomic background affects how you have access to treatment, um, employment issues, um, family violence, sexual violence, uh, mental health. People often begin to self-medicate, especially because mental health problems, particularly in black people, are extremely underdiagnosed. Black men and boys, for example, when they begin exhibiting mental health struggles, is often read as a behavior problem, right? So again, people are criminalized. You see high rates of suspension of black youth from schools, and you need see black kids being um, disciplined at very young ages at higher rates. Um, and this is, again, identified as black people acting out rather than a mental health problem. So if we don't get these early interventions, that goes on to become a problem, and people end up with addiction issues. And, of course, then that can lead into intersections with criminality, right? So being criminalized, ending up in prison, um, ending up in that kind of cycle. So it's very vital that people have information about mental health, that we intervene early in mental health um, treatment, that we have treatment options. And that means not putting our money into policing and prisons and uh, useless drug policies that have been proven not to work and putting our money into substance treatment, putting our money into counseling, putting our money into community supports, including support for employment, community groups that provide support for youth, um, those things actually help us as communities recover. They help us heal from our racial trauma and our generational trauma. Um, we need help with our families, addressing the family trauma that we've experienced. 
Um, if we've experienced migrancy, refugee, these are all things that have social alienation attached because of the racial experiences. We need help and resources in our communities to address that. These are actually things that are shown to be positive and to actually produce results. Um, but of course, people are very, very invested in policing as a response to social ill. So we'll pour millions and millions of dollars into policing, which doesn't work, um, and which creates more trauma. And we won't put that money into the social things that we need, which actually prevent crime, which actually prevent harm and addiction, and prevent and intervene in mental health. So um, we really need to be intervening in our communities at a community level. We need to be really treating our families. And we need a lot of time as a people, as black people who have experienced enslavement, who have experienced dislocation, migrancy, trauma, the pain of racism, which we know is a medical issue. And more and more medical studies show how deeply uh, racism has impacted our health. And that impacts our family and community life. And that in turn impacts us as individuals. Um, and we really need the time, space and resources put on our treatment so that we can heal as a people. We can heal each other and we can heal within our community. Great, that was uh, a fantastic. Um, it's a very informative intake, a very informative take, should I say, on uh, on the subject. And clearly, you're very much on top of uh, the different issues or different aspects of this particular issue. Thanks very much for uh, coming in and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, it was wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me, and, and good luck with everything. And thank you for having me on your show. Wonderful. It's great to have you. All the best in the future. Bye-bye. Right, so that was uh, Al Jones. And uh, now for the Islamic perspective from uh, Imam Tupir. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we do have a short clip that we do want to play with our listeners. And this is on the question of will the faith of drug dealers be different than those who distribute alcohol? So we, we have a question-answer session um, and this is from the fourth caliph, may Allah have mercy on him. So let's listen to this. Illegal exports of drugs from Pakistan have become a problem for the government of Pakistan. Only from Pakistan? And other countries in the world these days. And other countries in the world these days. <laughs> yes. I shall be grateful if Hazur most kindly advise us that while the use of alcohol is prohibited in Islam, what is the teachings of Islam regarding the producers, dealers, and the users of harmful drugs? <laughs> you know, you established a base for a question. And when the question came, it seemed to me it had no relationship with the base. You know, as if you are uh, preparing the base here and building the question here in the air. Why, suddenly, why did you suddenly switch over to alcohol while establishing the fact that Pakistan was one of the countries from which drugs were exported to the rest of the world? Uh, alcohol is, is also one of the vices, Azur. What? Alcohol is also so without referring, without, alcohol and without all uh, um, bringing the bad name to Pakistan unnecessarily, uh, you could have asked this question as such. That's Why to blame poor Pakistan for this? Uh, no, Azur, recently there was a film shown on the BBC you know, panorama. You are a Britisher, I know. You are a Britisher. You are free, but I am a Pakistani. No, I am a Pakistani, born Pakistani. I don't like Pakistan being abused unnecessarily. Why should I? No, I say this is a problem for the government of Pakistan, I said, Azur. In my you know, I, I don't believe that either. 
<laughs> it is a bad name brought to Pakistan, and uh, maybe it's the doing of the of the of some government of Pakistan as well. If a government is meaningful and wants to put her foot down, this evil would not have been permitted to develop to this giant size. So, government can't be the government can't be absolved of this responsibility. It is not the problem created by some other factors, which is being now uh, dumped upon the government. It may be otherwise, but the whole issue is irrelevant. There are so many other countries responsible for such vices, and in some countries it is uh, the government itself which is running all these things. In many countries, the government is involved at some stages, either uh, officially in involved or unofficially involved. But uh, that is not relevant to the question you have asked. That is to say, why alcohol is forbidden? My wording is, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, talking about against anything regarding Pakistan because I was born in Pakistan and I got love for Pakistan. I'm not against the Pakistan, but I've, I've said it's become a problem for the government of Pakistan, I said in my question. <laughs> I have explained that too. Yes, please. Uh, uh, re regarding alcohol, I said uh, this is one of the vices uh, which uh, uh, is pro prohibited uh, all this. And the, my, my question is that... Uh, now I follow. You mean to say that although alcohol is forbidden, drugs are not forbidden? Yeah. Eh? They are forbidden? So what is the question then? <laughs> any, any vice is forbidden, but... Uh, I wanted to know something regarding drugs, uh, I mean illegal, harmful drugs, if there is anything uh, regarding that in traditions. You already like said that. that drugs are forbidden in, 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 uh, according to Islam. They are yes. forbidden. But so, what is the question then? Uh, regarding the, the dealers, producers and dealers. <laughs> the same applies to the drug dealers as it as applies to the alcohol dealers. Their fate will not be different. Right, so, so that was uh, an extract from one of the question-answer sessions, and uh, the question was dealing with uh, alcohol and uh, drugs. Um, and uh, it brings us uh, nicely to the uh, conclusion of uh, this pro program, or we're approaching to the conclusion of this program. And uh, it means that it is time to thank those all who have uh, been involved in the production of this broadcast. Uh, our producers, Saqib Munir Ahmed and Barira Mansoor, are deserving of our gratitude, as are their researchers, Hannah uh, Ahmed, Neha Latif, and Sadia Bekhtiar, uh, during the course of the program, where we also had the company of uh, Imams uh, Musharraf Ahmed and Asan Maksud, who have been blooded into the, uh, presenting these kinds of programs in the future. So thank you for, to them for coming along. Uh, and then we also should not forget Akib Ahmedan, who has been uh, beavering away in the control room to make sure that everything technically, tec technically uh, ran smoothly. And lastly, uh, uh, but not least, uh, let me thank our uh, uh, listeners for uh, coming in. Not forgetting, of course, the uh, contributors we had, the professional contributors who came in and helped us understand some of the issues on the subjects that we're discussing. And here's the 9 o'clock news.